Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Joining us today is a former Protestant minister, now Catholic, Marcus Grodi. I'll just, as I start again, I recognize as a new convert that it takes a long time to get used to the language, uh, being a Catholic. Uh, and becoming a Catholic to me is in some ways like getting dropped into a strange country where I don't know the language or the customs. Uh, I can't speak the language, so I can't even order from the menu. It's strange. But then after someone teaches me the language, I realize that I'm home, that this was really my home all along. But, in, but then in um, trying to feel at home or to be at home in the Catholic Church, it's a lot like an American becoming a Frenchman. You can learn the language and you can live in France, but it takes a lifetime to truly become a Frenchman to where everybody else will think, oh, yeah, he's a Frenchman. He's not speaking with an American accent anymore. Well, that's the way it is. I realize even as I pray, my terminology, reflections are not quite Catholic yet. I'm, I'm learning. You know, in coming into the Catholic Church, it really does amaze me how few Catholics I've met read their Bibles. I mean, I knew that that was true, but I really am amazed by that. And the reason I'm so amazed is because it's really your book it's not the, a Protestant book. When you know the history of it, that the only reason we have the Bible today is because of the faithful protection, copying, translation, the, the disseminating of the booklet for 2,000 years. It's the Catholic Church. In fact, I think there's a book that St. Joseph Radio uh, has on their list called Where We Got the Bible. It's a wonderful little book that explains how we owe to the Catholic Church, the fact that we still have the scriptures. If it wasn't for the faithfulness of those monks back in the Middle Ages, we wouldn't have it. Of course, we see the protection of the Holy Spirit. But what happened in the Reformation was a sad thing in that when this new idea was promulgated in the Reformation, and that is that this book is all we need to know everything that we need to know about the faith and that the tradition is irrelevant and the history is just this book. When that idea was essentially invented in the early 1500s, because you can't find any fathers that say that anywhere, when it was invented, it caused a reaction on both sides. On the Protestant side, what we experienced, it led to what could be called uh, bibliolatry, the worship of the book. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, this book becomes it. And if it says it in there, well, Calvinist would say, if it, if, it, if it says it in there, I must do it. If it doesn't say I can do it, I can't do it. I mean, that's a Calvinist. It's literally here. Lutherans were a little more lax on that. 
But what has happened, it's led to some pretty strange things. You know, we'd read in there and it would say one thing, and that means I must do it. We become almost a slave to the word in ignorance of the context or the purpose of that. And of course, we have the thousands of interpretations of any given text. So on that one side of Protestantism, we see Bibleolatry. On the other side, though, in the Catholic Church, I suppose you might call it Bible atrophy. <laughs> you know, there, there, a fear grew that if we read this book, we'll become Protestants. Right? And so the book gathers dust, and you have that really nice family Bible whose main purpose is keeping track of the family relationships, probably, and who was baptized when, and who the godparents were, but yet it's never opened. And you know, that happens in Protestant churches too. I mean, Protestants, uh, it truly does. And, and I think what, and from Protestants, the reason we let it gather dust is because since we have the word, we've gotten out of the habit of thinking we need to memorize it or to study it or to have it in here because it's in here. So as long as I have this, I'm in good shape. Well, we, we, we gained security from having it sitting there so I can always go to it, but then pretty soon we don't go to it anymore. Might be the same in the Catholics. It's there. That's the Word of God. As long as I have it there, then I'm in good shape. But, but we don't open it very often. There's a fear there and uncomfortableness. Um, if, if I were to open up Vatican II, which I, I brought, you would find in the beginning of a document called uh, Dei Verbum that talks about um, Revelation. You would see that it lifts up sacred scripture and sacred tradition as the expression of God's revelation to the church and how you've got to have both. You've got to have both because they are all the products of the Holy Spirit leading the church. And what we find is that the two extremes I just said are really choosing one or the other. Protestants going with sacred scripture, leaving sacred tradition behind. Or Catholics lifting up tradition, letting scripture fall. To be a faithful Catholic, you've got to appreciate both as the history of the church always has. Okay, now, again, I'm not going to go into all the background of that. I would recommend this book, Where the Bible Came From, is a wonderful exposition of how this thing happened for the last 2,000 years. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is to talk about, well, how you as Catholics can open this book and enjoy it without fear. And not only that, maybe invite four or five others to your house for a cup of coffee and open that up together and read it and really be inspired and empowered and strengthened in your faith. Actually, there's two hows I want to talk about. The first is that. I want to give you some basic Bible study techniques that I've used that have been helpful, that I think still apply for Catholics. Second of all, though, there's another way in which Catholics have become very lax in the last hundred years. We've got the extremes again. And that is that Protestants, my background, is we became the evangelists in this culture. Catholics kind of let it go, right? We've kind of lost, as Catholics, that freedom, that maybe that, that calling that we are to share our faith with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors. And so I'd like to 
talk a bit about that, especially using the book of Romans, which is the main book that Protestants have always used to defend the faith. I'm going to show you how that book is truly the, de the defense of the Catholic gospel. There was a, a way that as a Protestant I used to use the book of Romans to share my faith, and it was called the Roman Road. And if you were to look at this old black Protestant Bible of mine, you would see that I have a little tab taped on a page. And this was the way that we began the Roman road. And what happens is I would turn, if I wanted to share my faith with you or share the faith, I would start at this little tab and I would turn here. And immediately I would go to uh, chapter 3, verses 23. And I'm, you don't need to look all this up, but just hear how the gospel is presented. It begins by saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we begin there. We've all failed. We've all sinned. We're short of what God expects us to do in every single one of us. And then in the, in the margin of my Bible, I've got written 5.12, which says, okay, I go to chapter 5, verse 12. Okay, then went to 5.12, and then 5.12 I turned and it says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All right? That's right. We've all sinned. It spread, and we all re reap the benefit of that, which is death. Then it says in my Bible, turn to 623. So I turn over there, and it says in 623, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've sinned. We reap death. We can't do it ourselves. There's nothing we can do to win God's salvation. And so there's the free gift of grace. It's the easy way out. We don't really have to do anything. We don't have to try because it's a gift of God through Christ. Well, then at that point, in the margins of my Bible, it says to go back, to step back a chapter, to chapter 5, verse 8, which says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God loves us so much, he wouldn't leave us in that spot, lost in our own sinfulness, and so what he has done is given us this free grace, this free entrance into the kingdom, which therefore we essentially, as has been interpreted, are guaranteed of eternal security. In fact, what it, and when you're doing this, you don't want the winds to blow your pages because then you lose track of all your little <laughs> notes. Uh, it, turn, it tells me to go over to chapter 10, verse 9, where you find the instructions on how to arrive, where it says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes in his heart and so is justified and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. And so that text is then used to show that it is faith alone that saves you. If you believe, if you confess and you believe, it is that faith alone that then gets you the free gift of grace. You've arrived. And then in my Bible it sends me back to chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more condemnation. You've arrived from that free gift. And then my verse, the last verse it leads you to is, who shall separate us from the love of God? This is the end of chapter 8. And it goes on, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It sounds very convincing. That simple six verses summarizes the gospel as I preached it for 20 years. Well, there's some problems with it that I didn't realize as I was preaching it. First of all, you notice that I was jumping all over the place. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 8, chapter 6. 
Well, the problem with that is you have to do that to make it fit this particular understanding of the gospel. And also you pull things out of context. For example, yes, we as Catholics believe you're saved by faith. We believe that. But what is faith? Is it merely just accepting a fact? Or when it says, if you believe in your heart, do you understand that what that means to believe in your heart? In Hebrew understanding, that means you believe with your entire being. What you do, what you feel, your attitudes, what you say, what you do with your feet, what you do with your hands, what you do with your body, that's what it means to believe in your heart. It isn't just this mere faith alone commitment. The problem with the Roman road is it does not the way it was given there, it does not express the theology of Romans. It expresses an interpretation of Romans made to fit that becomes very preachable, very simple. Well, what I would like to do with you today, I'll be honest with you right out, right out front, is that I'm not going to be able to do this um, in the depth that I would like to, just because of time. Now, all this is, is a compilation of consecutive verses beginning in the beginning of chapter 1, going through Romans, of important verses that express the key essential outline of Paul's theology. This is not all the verses. Uh, obviously, I would say that the best way to study Romans is to read the entire book, and there's nothing short of that, really. But if I wanted to, to condense it down for a way that we can look at the book, these are some very key passages, and in a moment we're going to go from beginning to end through this and to see and to hear what is Paul's theology of the gospel in Romans. But before I get to that, before I get to that, what I would like to first of all give you is some basic Bible study techniques. You see, I believe that the Bible is not a book to be feared or to be preserved. It's a book to be read and to loved and to be enjoyed and to share with your friends, your family, your children. But admittedly, it is an old book and sometimes it's hard to read and where do I start or how do I get anything out of this or what if I run across something that's scary and I don't know what it means. And so I'd like to give you some Bible study tips. These are things that I've used as a pastor. And first, I have a list of scriptural encouragements there that, well, you'll hear what they say in a second. When you begin in Psalm 119, you understand the biggest psalm in the Bible, the whole thing's written about the word, the law, the commandments of God, and the importance in the life of God's people that the, uh, the scripture is to be there. And of course, when this speaks, this speaks about, at this point in time in, in the scriptures, this is pointing to the law of, uh, of Moses and understanding the commandments. I'd like to read you those verses, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. With my whole heart I seek thee. Let me not wander from thy commandments. I have laid up thy word in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Back in those days, they didn't have the privilege of being able have a Bible sitting on their coffee table. If they were to know the word, it had to be inside. So they memorized it. I think in some ways we've lost something because we've become so dependent on the written word. If we didn't have this, we'd have to memorize it, and then it'd be there with us all the time. 
So David is reminding us of something that maybe we should still consider. In verse 105, one you've all heard, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. The scriptures are a guide for us uh, that help us see our way through the darkness of this life, this world. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This verse is often misused to give the impression that it is saying that the Bible is the sole authority of your faith. That's not what this says. Listen to it again. I read this last night. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says that the purpose of this is to help us grow, equip us, strengthen us, but it nowhere says Scripture is the final word, the authority on everything we believe. It never says that, but it lifts it up as the revelation inspired by God to help us know God's will for our life. And particularly when this was written, it meant the Old Testament. As Christians, we often center on the New Testament, but when this was written, he was saying that the Old Testament was the one that the early church really read for almost at least 100 years, maybe as long as 400 years before the New Testament was officially added to the Bible at the Council of Hippo. Up until that time, when they got up and preached, they quoted from the Old Testament, and the sermon came from that. It's an important part of our heritage. And it's profitable for teaching, and that's what Vatican II has emphasized. That's why your sermons now are from Scripture, because that's what it's for. For reproof, sometimes it's uncomfortable. For correction, for training in righteousness, that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. But, here's the but. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that I mentioned last night. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. The but is that we have to recognize that we might be wrong when we interpret. We might read that and say, oh, you know what that's telling me to do? We have to always humbly recognize that we might be wrong in our interpretation. We must not allow ourselves to think that that all I need is the Holy Spirit and myself and this book, and I can have all the truth. Because you know as well as I do how many different views there are out there. And not just amongst denominations, but within the Catholic Church. So there's a humbleness when we come before the Word to recognize that we might read that, and I might be wrong. I don't, I'm not saying this, you should be afraid of it. That's not the point. The point is just to recognize it and humbly say, Holy Spirit, please help me, protect me open my mind, to be submissive also to the teaching of the church and interpretation of a particular text. The next verse I put down there, 1 John 2, is one that is scary and has been misused. When you look at 1 John 2, 26-27, it says, I write this to you about those who would deceive you. At this time, there were people teaching different gospels, trying to pull people out of the church. But the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you abide in him that verse has been used too often to say well you have the Holy Spirit you don't need anyone to teach you anything he'll lead you into all truth well actually that's taking that out of context of that particular situation in that church that was dealing with a Gnostic influence on the church that were saying we have the inspiration and he's saying you have the inspiration you don't need to listen to those you have it what he basically says in the context is 
Remember what you heard in the beginning? Remember the truth that, you, that we founded this church on? That is the foundation for what you believe, not this new stuff. Hold on to that which you had in the beginning. Constantly emphasize. With those concerns, when you turn to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Make sure I have the right verse. He says, first of all, this is the reminder, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The, the, the warning or the caution is, as you're reading Scripture, when you come across something that seems strange, just remember that you might be wrong, and so you might need to go to your, to your spiritual director and say, I don't understand this passage, or I think this is where it's leading me. What does the church say about that? Or share it with some other Catholics and say, what do you think? And together you say, boy, we can't figure it out. Let's go see the Father. The point is, just remember the caution. In fact, the next verse is interesting, 3, 15, 16. If we're going to get into Romans, look what he says about Paul. He says, and count the forbearance of your Lord as salvation. So also our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand. Even Peter says that about Paul's letters. There's a couple things in there that are a little rough. Which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. All right. Now, I hope I haven't discouraged you from reading scripture. What I want you to see is that we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And we need to help each other as we understand the word. I think the best place for Bible study is together. You can share. And then if you run into problems, you go to the Father. Or you go to another spiritual director and say, help us through. Or go to, your, go to a, a commentary. My point here, though, is to encourage you in, in the first couple of verses to say that it's an essential part of your life. Now, there's a quote from a book that I would recommend. Um, a set of commentaries called the Navarre Bible. Have any of you seen these? They're wonderful. Um, very faithful. They give the, the text you're studying and then some commentary. These are good, good material as a background to your study. If you read a text and you say, oh boy, what does that mean? You could go to this and get what uh, very faithful teachers of the church uh, give us interpretation. But from the introduction of this book, I found this quote, which says, Scripture should be interpreted in the context of sacred tradition under the guidance of the magisterium. You don't separate Scripture from tradition because they're, they're together, they're apart. Together they make up the deposit of faith, as Vatican II expresses. Under the guidance of the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. Now, when you gather at home or in your privacy and you open the scriptures and you want to read them, you can still do that. You pray, Lord, please guide me as I read this text that my interpretation, my understanding would not be uh, separated from that of the church, uh, that I may be faithful to the teaching of the church, and uh, help me make sure that that's true. Now, you have to understand, that's a whole lot different than I used to pray as a Protestant. It was me and the Bible. It was me in the Bible. And the scary thing was I was a pastor. And all those people in the pew were getting what me in the Bible came up with. All right. Here's some suggestions that I might 
give as a way of getting started. Some suggestions on how to begin. First, I'll just give them to you all here, that whole section. First, when you open, for example, your New American Bible, you're going to find notes in there. Have you ever noticed that? Notes and introductions about the author and the date and the background. On the bottom, on the bottom you're going to have uh, little explanations. That's a really good place to begin because it might, you wonder, well, who's this Paul? It'll say a little bit about where he came from, what was the time like, what people were like, who he was writing to, uh, when the book was possibly written. Those are a good place to begin. And the reason I, I encourage that is a lot of us just jump right to verse 1, and, and, and you have to remember that the first readers of that letter of Paul, they knew all the background because they were in it. But we're centuries later. That little introduction helps us get back to the moment so we can hear it possibly through the ears of the first century people. But one word of warning for you, just to remember, that those notes are not a part of the inspired word of the text. All right? They're, they're not the divine word. They're helps. And they may not always be exactly right on, but they're just helps for you to get into the text. The second thing, though, I'd strongly encourage is that if you want to read... If you would like to study all the first chapter of John, I would say the most important thing, though, is to read the whole book through sometime. If you can do it in one setting, great. You know, most of the books of the New Testament you can read in one setting in easily less than a half hour. The Gospel of, of Mark you probably can read in 20 minutes. The first letter of John you can read in 10. In fact, uh, about 10 years ago, I was asked to help write some commentary on the first letter of John for a book that was being published. And for a whole month, I read the first letter of John every single morning. Ten minutes is all it took. And the more you read it, the more stuff comes alive. So if you can, if you read it all the way through, you get the entire context of the passage you're going to study as a whole. How does it fit into the whole letter that Paul was writing, or the whole gospel that Matthew was writing? And when you read it several times, what you'll especially notice is that there are important words that will pop out at you. You'll notice in the book of Romans, boy, he sure uses the word faith a lot, or the word righteousness a lot, or the word law a lot, grace. When you write those down, what's nice is then before you get into your more in-depth study, you can go to a dictionary or a Bible dictionary and look up the word and say, well, what does that mean? What does grace mean? What does faith mean? Look up in Webster's, and usually I would say most parishes have a Bible dictionary in a library somewhere. That's what those are there for, right? So they can be used. By looking up these terms, it will again open up your vision to the entire book, but it will help you that when you start studying a passage, uh, you will have uh, more background to understand what Paul was meaning at the time when he said grace, or when he said uh, Righteousness. Okay, let's assume that you've done this. You've, you've read the introduction. You've read through the Bible one time, just casually, with a cup of coffee. You've read through the book of Romans. Probably maybe you did it in two settings. You've jotted down a couple terms like grace and faith and righteousness of God and the law. You've taken a chance to look them up in the dictionary just to see what do they mean, to make sure I understand exactly what's meant by righteousness or atonement or justification. 
But now where do I go? If I want to, as we used to say, really get into the text, I'm going to give you four suggestions of things that have been helpful to me. First of all, journal reflection. When I became uh, an active Christian 20 years ago, the pastor, this is what he instructed me to do, and it made a major difference in my life, and I recommend it strongly. I still do it from time to time. I'm not as active. After I've read through the whole Bible the whole time, what you do is you take a journal. It's very simple. You just start reading. And as you're reading, you'll come upon a text that will, as we used to say, kind of jump out at you. It, It sounds significant. This particular phrase, this word, means a lot to me, and you'd write it down. For example, let's say you were reading this first paragraph, and you read it, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his apostles, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. Now, if I had read this a couple times and I looked at it now, well, as I was doing this this morning, one phrase did draw interest in me, and that is where Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And I might write that in my journal, and then I might reflect, well, what does that mean that Paul was set apart? Think about what you think that means that it meant that Paul was set apart by Jesus Christ for the gospel. That's his vocation or his calling. And I would, might write in my journal, well, what have I been set apart for? Well, maybe, yes, maybe the particular occupation I have, whatever it is, is what God has called me to be set apart for. But in that occupation, whether it's a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or, or, or whatever it is, in that occupation, what have I been set out to do? Am I still somehow a, a witness to my fellow workers? If someone were to ask me, who are you? What do you do for a living? Would all I say would be, oh, I'm a, I'm a baker. Or might you say, as I've heard someone says, actually, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, creatively disguised as a baker. Right? Isn't that what you all are? You're a disciple of Jesus Christ, creatively disguised as whatever it is. You could write a page on what it means to be set apart for God. Then you might go down and say, well, that's kind of good. Let's go on down. Promise beforehand, gospel concerning... According to the flesh, designated, just keep going on down, nothing. Wait, his resurrection from the dead. And I remember, oh yes, that was the key doctrine of the first century that changed the church. It was because of that fact and that belief that the whole thing happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I might ask, well, how does that fact make a difference in my life? What difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead? in my job, in my family, in my day-to-day commitments, my priorities, my tomorrow. And you could write down some reflections. In fact, you might even get to the point that says, you know, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. It should. And this is how I'm going to commit myself to be different. 
because I'm going to step forth and believe that Jesus rose from the dead for me. And you go on down. Let's see, Jesus Christ. Up there, remember Jesus Christ? I wonder what his middle name was. Once her young boy says, it was duh. (laughs) See, that's not his proper name. Jesus Christ. Jesus T. Christ. It was a, uh, like a short creed. Jesus is the Messiah. And it became shortened. And we see down here, Jesus is the Messiah, our Lord. If you reflected on that, what's it mean that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah? And then what does it mean that he's your Lord? There's a difference in your life. Do I serve him? You could reflect on that for a while. Then you get down to this really neat phrase, to bring about the obedience of faith. One of the most important phrases in all of Romans, the obedience of faith. It doesn't just say there, faith alone. It talks about the connection between obedience and faith. Faithful obedience, that's what it means to believe. Then you might, in your journal, say, well, what is my faith like? With somebody standing back from me, watching my life, listening to my words, examining my lifestyle, and then hearing that I'm a Christian, label me as, yes, he is a person that lives obedience of faith. And I might then say, well, maybe there's something that needs to change in me. Now, what we've just done is just use that little journaling method. I don't think we've come up with anything against the magisterium of the church. And you can do that. Does that sound simple enough? Well, it takes getting used to. But I'll tell you what, in my own life, it changed me for years. I have journals that go back to 1973 when I, when I found the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can go back and find one that I wrote all those years ago and open it up and I'll find maybe written across the page the obedience of faith and I saw how I was struggling with it then and now 20 years later I say, whoa, I can see how I've grown but I can also see, boy, I can still grow a little bit. The value of that journal is that it's a living testament of your own life and how you've walked with Christ. I strongly encourage that. A second way of uh, getting into Scripture study is what I call the call the uh, WWWWH method, which we all learned in junior high. If you went to junior high and you learned who, when, where, why, what, and how, how are the, you know how to do Bible study. I mean, we were taught in junior high English that that is the way you analyze a story, but it works wonderfully for studying scripture. And again, we'll do that with the same passage. Let's have fun with it here. Let's start out with, I, when I've done this, and this is great when you're sitting around with a cup of coffee and about six people, and do the who, what, where, when, why, how method. And you start out by saying, okay, who? You start out with all the who's in this passage. So we start out with Paul. Okay, well, what what can we find out about Paul from this passage? You may not know anything about Paul, about his life as a Pharisee and conversion. You may not know any of that. And say, this is all you had. What could we find out about Paul? Well, we, we see, first of all, what? He's a servant. But not just a servant of some Roman magistrate. He's a servant of, of Jesus. As he looks at himself, he's the kind of a person that's writing this letter that sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. 
Second of all, we see called to be an apostle. Now, if we happen to remember the story of his conversion along the road, remember that he saw Jesus who called him out of persecuting the church into being a defender of the church. And then we also see that he was set apart for the gospel of God. So in that little section, we define who is writing this letter. He's a servant of God. He's committed. This letter is probably an expression of his calling as an apostle. Now, let's go to our next who. Who would be the next who that shows up? Jesus. Jesus Christ. If we look down through the passage and see what else we find out about Jesus, we go down, we can find out that his son, he was descended from David. But it's got according to the flesh and also got designated son of God and power according to the spirit. What does that particular phrase refer to in terms of theology? Pardon? His divinity, the incarnation, the divine and the human by flesh and by the Spirit. Okay, we're, we're drawn into immediately a doctrine. We learn a little bit about Jesus. We get down here, there's his name again. Jesus Christ, he's our Lord. Talks a bit about our relationship to him as it was Paul's Lord, but it's our Lord. So we're called to be servants too. Go down. Anything more about Jesus? There's his name again. Okay, what else we've got in terms of a who? Called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. You, know, you ever notice anything about the Bible? It, it never tries to prove the existence of God. It begins with the acceptance and the bold assumption and acceptance that God exists and it just goes from there. In the beginning of Genesis, it starts, in the beginning was God. Start. Same thing with Paul's letter. God, what do we know about God? Well, we get into an interesting thing, which he pronounced. Well, now we get into this whole modern argument about is God male or female. We see all through this, though, that Paul generally speaks of God uh, as his son. We also see another, his prophets. There's another group of people in there. The prophets, who are the prophets? Well, it says the old scriptures. She took the time to think, well, we could go back to the Old Testament. What that little phrase reminds us of is that the early church was dependent on its understanding of all the Old Testament stories. When you're reading that, you might think, boy, if for them, knowing the Old Testament formed the foundation to understanding these New Testament letters, maybe I need someday to go back and read Genesis, to find out about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the covenant that God made with his people, and then go into Exodus and realize how God brought them out of Egypt and the whole thing with the, with the uh, separating of the Red Sea and bringing them into the Promised Land, eventually through Joshua, and to study how the covenant was then uh, given again and again and again and reaffirmed in David. And then how eventually the prophets are speaking to Israel, saying, calling them back to faithful life. And when we read the prophets, as he's drawing our attention to, the reason he's drawing the attention to the prophets is probably because we do the same stupid things that the prophets are talking about. The prophets are saying that your sacrifices and your rituals and all that stuff are worthless unless they come from hearts committed to God inside. Isn't that still true today? If you come into church and do the water at the beginning and do that and kneel and pray and do all the stuff, 
and it isn't inside, then all of that is worthless. You know, if, we're, if, if your externals don't come from your internals, then your externals are dead. And that's what the prophets were saying. And Paul, in this letter, is trying to say the gospel says that we need changed hearts. Then your externals will have a wonderful meaning in your life. Any other who's in this passage? We got David, Holy Spirit. We've got the Trinity in this. We've got God, Son of God, Holy Spirit. In the first four verses of Romans, we see the, the Trinity coming out. We go on down and find some other who's. We find some interesting ones, like right here, all the nations. Looked in the context, we realize that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for everybody. The gospel is not just for Catholics. It's for everybody. We've got to share the good news. In fact, it's not just for all those people. He says it is including yourselves. He brings the whole thing down to us. It's not just for those people. It's for us. We're included, it says. Then if we go down here, we can find another word which we're going to get to. Saints. We did all that just with the word who. That's kind of a lot of stuff we got from that. We go to the next thing. And went down this passage. We would The next thing we might do is when. Well, there's not much in there on when. Or where. The only really location that we find is down here with Rome. Actually, with the word when, you can look and find when there's any kind of time reference and what you might find out is, for example, here's an important thing to see. Uh, we have received grace. Is that future, present, or past? In other words, we've already received it. We stand in this grace. It's not just something we look forward to. We see that it's something we already possess. Go down here, we can find some other things. Look down here. Um, who are called to belong. Is that past, present, or future? Right now. Right below it. We're called to be saints. This is just something we're going to be maybe someday after purgatory, but it's now. Okay, that's who and when, where. Uh, the next one is uh, what. What's he saying? What are some things that he is saying? And when I... When I use the word what, I'm trying to go through there and find what are the key themes of what he's trying to get across in this passage. You notice that Jesus Christ is mentioned a bunch of times. And so right away we can probably guess that that's going to be one of the main what's or themes of this letter. Another thing is the gospel of God. The gospel will be important. What is that? What is the gospel? Or, pardon? Resurrection. Resurrection. A key theme. Of course, we remember that that's probably the key theme of the early church. That's what changed everything. This is also a key one. The obedience of faith. He doesn't say anywhere in the whole book of Romans that it's faith alone. It's obedience of faith. In fact, if you were to turn to the end, you don't have to do it now, and so I think it's verse 27, you would find that not only does he begin the book of Romans with the statement of obedience and faith, 
He ends it with obedience of faith. The package of Romans is that we're called to a faithful obedience to Christ. Now, let me say, after I've gone through this whole explanation of Bible study, that part of the problem with the gospel as presented the way I used to as a Protestant is it was just too simplistic to think that I could pick out five little verses and that's all you'd need to know, then you say your prayer and you've arrived. It isn't that easy. Um, it's easy from the aspect that every part of our becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, it's 100% God. It's 100% grace. And we respond. We can't earn our way. Catholics have never taught that. But once you've made that step, that's not it. It's a life. Believing in your heart is a life long walk with Jesus. But what I'd like to do is just to show you as quickly as I can through this little book and how you might even sit down with a cup of coffee in this little booklet with a friend and talk about what the Catholic Church means by being saved through Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, on this very first page, you notice that we've already gone through that. And so you're all experts on chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, right? But what I would like to point out in here is that phrase, an important phrase, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. We don't separate faith from obedience. Paul didn't separate faith from obedience. They're part of the same thing. If our faith doesn't bring about a change in our life, our faith is dead, James said in the book of James. And so he begins when he talks about the gospel of saying that it is centered on the obedience of faith. And turn the page in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. The gospel has the power to change lives. It makes a difference. Not just to a few, but to everyone. And you have to understand, when he says this phrase, when Paul said this originally, he would have shocked the first century Jews. Because they said, wait, it's for us. It's not for those folks. And the point is, it doesn't matter if you're born a Catholic. It doesn't guarantee you anything. You could be a Catholic and not be a part of the covenant. Where's your heart? And where's your life in relationship to your faith? The next paragraph. Do you not know? You have to understand here, he's talking to Christians. Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, he goes on to say, do you not understand that not a one of us has an excuse? Every single one of us should know about God. Because as it says, he's made himself perfectly clear in this world. He hasn't hidden it from us. What's happened is through our desire as a, uh, of wanting to be our own God, we have turned away from God and rejected him and brought upon ourselves, as it says here, by our hard and impenitent heart, we have stored up for ourselves wrath for the day of judgment. Basically, we're held accountable for our lives. And there's the key phrase, for he will render to every man according to his works. 
Now there's a difference between the Protestant and the Catholic understanding of Romans. There's plan A, plan B. Plan A is through chapter 2. In other words, if you can work it out, then you can be saved. But the way we explain it as Protestants is the next part in chapter 3 says, but we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, since we couldn't do that, plan A is defunct. You, couldn't, you can't get to heaven through works. Plan B is chapter 3 and on, which is it's a complete gift. You don't do anything to earn it. But there's nowhere in here where Paul says that's defunct. In fact, he doesn't say it like this. For he will render to every man according to works. To those who will be patient in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Notice he doesn't say, well, for those who could have by their patience done it by well-doing, then they may have made it into heaven. No, he's talking in the present tense saying, right now, it's by patience and well-doing that we get into eternal life. What I'd like to show you is just a couple things, and then we're going to bring this to a close. If you look with me very quickly through here, you'll notice that as he goes to the next page at the top in chapter 3, he says, For I have already charged that all men are under the power of sin. It's in that section right there where the interpretation of the entire book of Romans gets off track. And I'm going to explain that, then I'm going to lead the rest of you to you. It's in that paragraph which is a misinterpretation of what's being said. Does that say that every single individual has sinned and falls short of the glory of God and have been so changed within by their sinfulness that they can't ever do anything good in the eyes of God? Now it implies that. It seems like actually for a while that the Protestants have won their day. Until you recognize that this is a quote from Psalm 14. And I want to read you all of Psalm 14. Because you recognize that Paul would never have been guilty of pulling anything out of context. Listen what he is saying in Psalm 114. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He begins by talking about atheists, or people that deny the reality of God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none that does good. In other words, those people that deny the reality of God are, in, in David's words, corrupt, abominable. None of them do good things. And the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. He's referring to those to see if there are any that act wisely to, that seek after God. Again, they have all gone astray. They are all like corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. So far, it sounds exactly it's quoted. Listen to what happens when you go on. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they shall be in terror, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You would confound the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. In this passage, he talks about those evildoers and those people that don't like God and then there are God's people, the righteous. He's drawing a distinction not between the Jews and the Gentiles, excuse me, the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles being the ones that are atheists and are lost, and the Jews that are the righteous. What he's saying is that even amongst you Jews, there are some of you that are the evildoers, and amongst some of the Gentiles, there are those that love God. But in all of us, in all of our people, we've fallen short. 
He is not saying that we cannot, through the help of the Holy Spirit, in fact, through patience and well-doing, find ourselves in the kingdom of God. In fact, if you would turn to chapter 8 now, I want to show you another key passage that was very important to me that I had never seen before. It's kind of amazing. See, when I realized that works really do make a difference. I mean, what I do with my life. In other words, I know that I can't earn my way to heaven. That's not what the Catholics teach. But yet, somehow, what I do makes a difference. Well, then how do I get from here to there? If I am a sinful person, and I sin, because of my sinfulness, I can't earn my way. But yet, what I do makes a difference. What's the connection? The connection is there in the middle where it says, uh, in the chapter 8, 1 through 5, do you find that little paragraph? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, the law, just the obeying of the law is going to make you arrive in heaven. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, it is the, the reason we have received the Holy Spirit and the reason that we've received grace is so that we, ourselves, through the help of God, can fulfill the requirement of the law that we need to fulfill to enter into the presence of God. We can't do it on our own. There's no way. And every single one of us someday will be the help accountable for our lives. But with the grace of God, 100% God in us responding, it says we are able to fulfill the requirement of the law. And that's why Jesus called us to be perfect as a heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to, our goal in life is to be holy like Jesus. When we realize I can't do that. So the option is not, well, I can't do it, so I'm just going to depend on Jesus, he's going to do it for me. No, I can't do it, so with the power of the Holy Spirit, I will do it, so help me God. You see the distinction there? That's the difference between the gospel. As Catholics, we recognize that you're saved by grace through faith. It's the grace that brings you into his kingdom. You've been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents. listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.